Hi, everybody. Once again, this is Mike. And this is Stephen. And welcome to a special episode of Re-Oscar, where we're going to do something a little different this time, not going to pick an Oscar year as we've been doing. We are going to hold our own special Oscars dedicated to horror movies. I'm pretty excited about this one. It's really an underserved genre in, in the Academy Awards, so... I think we're going to do a good job and we have a lot to pick from because it's never been covered. What we're doing here is we've created our own categories and to start off, they're fairly basic and broad. Um, we're going to go through best classic universal film, best werewolf film, best vampire film, best haunted house film, best folk horror film, best horror comedy film, best slasher film, and best final girl. And the way we did it is we each chose a few of these categories and nominated two movies for each one. So instead of the usual five that each category has at the Oscars, we have four, two from each of us. So we're both equally represented. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that this is a really good one for us because what we have is a horror movie aficionado, Steven, and a recovering scaredy cat in me. Uh, really did not watch a lot of horror movies when I was a kid because I was scared to death of them and have only recently in the past few years finally come around to watching a good amount of these. So uh, it's all a bit new to me. So I'm, so I'm going to come at it with the, the perspective of seeing most of these for the first time. Well, you might have the same approach as the Academy because they don't really nominate anything for horror. In fact, I, according to the internet, there have only been six films that are considered horror nominated for Best Picture. Uh, and they were The Exorcist, Jaws, The Silence of the Lambs, The Sixth Sense, Black Swan, and Get Out. And to me, not all of these really fall into horror. And as I was looking at them, I was thinking, how do I define horror? What does it mean to me to be a horror film? And I thought about it for a little bit. And what I came up with, and this is pretty general and there are exceptions to the rule, but it seems to me that horror, as I define it, is somebody running from some sort of malevolent force. For me, it's tough to find a horror film where it's not a protagonist running from something that's trying to kill them. So with that in mind, what do you think horror is? Well, horror for me used to be almost everything because I was <laughs> free to watch anything that even remotely looked scary. I couldn't even get through the beginning of Young Frankenstein. I tried to watch it when I was like 11 and just the beginning with the house. And I was like, yeah, you know what? This doesn't look like something I want to see. But uh, wh when I think of horror, I do think of it in terms of not suspense, which is more drawn out and slow. It's, it's, it's more about you know, jump scares and, and a base level fear that you have, mm -hmm. as opposed to dread, which is a little bit different. I think it's just a, 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 a base level fear of, of something that's coming at you and, and how we respond to it. So I think there there's... I guess if I had to define it, that's the way I would see it. Yeah, I think we're pretty close together on that. I think that's maybe specific to film. I think about horror in gothic novels or other media, and maybe it doesn't have the same definition, but in film, it definitely seems like what makes a good horror film is somebody running away from being killed. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's you're exactly right, because in terms of a movie, you're looking for something visceral. Something has to come reach out and grab you where in a book, because you're reading it and you have to create it in your own head. It's more of a slow burn. It's, it's more about unfolding things in a way that is just 
really horrible because you're seeing it in your own mind. I mean, that's why Stephen King is so good at it. He just creates scenarios that aren't necessarily out of your boots scary, but just this entire world of just dread that, that you feel as you're reading it. Uh, and, and he's always been great at that. Whereas a horror movie shorter and it's just kind of punchy. It has to grab you by the throat and, and kind of, well, sometimes literally, but grab you by the throat and, and, uh, and shake you into it. So. And that's interesting too, because Stephen King's adaptations don't always work as films. So I think that's part of the problem that a lot of Stephen King's best work is cerebral, not in it cerebral and it's PhD level or anything, but cerebral is and most of it is in your head. And he tends to get inside of characters' heads. He gives you like in the book for Cujo, like he's inside the dog's head. And you right. get to, to go through what they're thinking, which is a completely crazy way to be inside that horror story. Where the movie, of course, is not very good because it's can't do any of that. It's just a straight up dog trying to kill people, which is just a very different feel. Right. That gives me an idea for a category for next year's horror Oscars. All right. So I think we can pretty much jump right in, but I want to say before we do that, I'm looking at what you selected and what I selected. And there are a couple categories where I think our selections really represent us. And it's almost like our Scorsese Spielberg thing. And it's interesting because we both have sort of a different tone to what we like. And I kind of love that. And maybe we'll talk about it a little more. I, I think there's one category in particular where this is very apparent. But uh, why don't we start from the beginning and get into the best uh, Universal Monsters film? The Everybody knows these. I mean, they're, they're the OG horror films that you see late at night and, and uh, are still pretty beloved. Uh, maybe not as much as they used to be. And it was tough to narrow these down, but I think we came up with four that are really representative of that group of films and have a, an impact on culture too. And I should say that that's something that we really had to keep in mind with this as we were picking what we wanted to be the winner in each of these categories is that you kind of have to, and maybe we have to do this with every episode, but you really have to keep time out of it and, and just look at this film in the year it was made and and forget about the cultural relevance it's had since, because there are some of these films that are really significant and continue to be significant and have, have changed what comes after them. So with that in mind, we did our best with it, but I think it's hard to keep that sort of separate fully. Um, yeah. And even understanding the creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, stretches the boundaries of what's considered classic because all the others were made in the early thirties, whereas Creature from the Black Lagoon was actually made in the early fifties. But it's filmed in black and white, and it's very much capturing the same spirit of those movies. And I think that any character that is in the Monster Squad uh, would qualify. So that's where we pull Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I will say part, part of the reason I picked this one for those reasons is because I watched the Monster Squad with my youngest son for the first time. And uh, he really enjoyed that, but then he wanted to watch most of these. But the one he wanted to see most was Creature from the Black Lagoon. Right. So... Uh, I figured that, that would be a fun ad to watch it. Well, since you since you said that you picked the creature from the Black Lagoon, um, why don't you tell us what your second pick was, and then I'll tell mine. My second pick was The Invisible Man. And my picks for this category were Dracula and Frankenstein. This almost is one of those divides that we have again, kind of. Uh, 
maybe not so much as others, but when I look at the Invisible Man and the creature from the Black Lagoon, they they feel sort of separate from those originals like Dracula and Frankenstein, which is interesting. But I, they're all part of the same world ultimately. Um, so, what did you pick as a winner for this? Well, then this one's really going to surprise you because I went into this fully expecting to think Dracula and Frankenstein would, would be up there for me, which, which they were. I think all these were good. Creature from the Black Lagoon probably being last, which kind of falls just more into like a simple kind of monster movie. But uh, I, I really enjoy The Invisible Man. And I, I thought it, it, it's a really fun watch. It's a really entertaining movie. And I, I love it. So that is my pick. I, I recommend The Invisible Man. Frankenstein and Invisible Man were both directed by the same person, James Well actually made four classic universal horror movies. But I think that this one in particular, it shows how good he was as a filmmaker because it's kind of funny. It's kind of scary. The special effects are surprisingly effective for 1933. Uh, well, they're groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Some, some truly groundbreaking stuff. And, and still, when you watch it now, it still looks pretty good. I mean, you see him smoke a cigarette and yeah. things. And some of that stuff is, is really, really fun to see what they were able to, to, to pull off in 1933. So that that is my surprising choice. It surprised even me. I love it. I I think those special effects are uh, super groundbreaking. And uh, the effects guy, John P. Fulton, made Claude Rains Invisible by layering different exposures of film on top of each other, uh, which I think was very cool. And that kind of sets the tone for things that are going to come after it. But um, I uh, interestingly, tomorrow here in Montclair, they're going to be screening The Invisible Man at my local theater. So I'm going to go check it out on the big screen. So I kind of went... You know, just real quick, we mentioned that the layering effect to do, do the mm -hmm. invisibility. I mean, that's why the, the last scene at the end is really effective too, because it's, it takes away the layers because he comes back from being invisible. That's just... I mean, it feels very ahead of its time. You know, even as you watch it now, it, it feels shocking they were able to pull off something like that. In 1933, it's, it's innovative and it's, it's creative. I love it. So for this one, I went with Dracula, the classic, you know. Um, I really kind of wrestled with it, but I think that Dracula is just so important. It's kind of a film that bridges the silent era and talkies. And it really has, from a visual standpoint, that's kind of what I focus on a lot. As a designer, I, I love the visuals. And it really uses German expressionism to create these haunting silhouettes and the darkness on the edge of the screen. And I think it's just, it sets the tone for everything that comes after it. But what I also found interesting is that as we're going through these and looking at, I don't know, almost 100 years of films with everything that we have nominated, these early universal films kind of lean into darkness because that was the only way they really had to create this sort of feeling of horror. Um, and as you go on and you get really into the 70s with things like The Exorcist and earlier with Rosemary's Baby, sort of the start of it, things get lighter because they have more technology to create these sort of fear moments that you know the audience is looking for and i i just think that's really cool and then you you know you get all the way to mid somar in 2019 which is just all daylight and it's crazy but if you look at the trajectory from dracula to mid somar <laughs> and just 
the darkness and the shadows and, and how it's filmed. I, I just think that's really cool. And because Dracula started all of that, I, that's what I went with um, as my pick. And I don't know that Bela Lugosi is my favorite Dracula, but, uh, you know, he sets the tone and, and uh, yeah, kind of love it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, it is hard to grapple with this one because they they all are classic in their own right. And I, I like Dracula, but I think for me, it was just uh, one too many shots of uh, Bela Lugosi's shadowed eyes staring at something. <laughs> there was, it was like one too many. I understand. Um, who's your favorite Dracula? <laughs> um, this is going to be the dumbest answer of all time. <laughs> My favorite Dracula because it's the first one I ever actually saw was uh, George Hamilton in Love at First Bite. That's that was amazing. My favorite Dracula. <laughs> uh, just the right amount of suave. And you just knew he was tan underneath all that pale. Yeah, I was going to say, oddly, the, the only tan Dracula. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> that reason alone. That's amazing. That might have been the first one that I saw too, but I think I saw Frank Langella as Dracula in the late 70s, which dates me. Um, I was very young when that came out and I probably saw it a few years later, but uh, I definitely remember him being very 70s and and just being like a cool Dracula. I don't know if it holds up. I probably haven't seen his version since, but uh, maybe yeah, I'll get I don't know any of the 70s Draculas hold up, including George Hamilton, but it's all right. In, in my in my in my mind, it seems perfect. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's move on to best werewolf film. For this one, I picked Wolfen and Ginger Snaps. And what were your picks? And I chose American Werewolf in London and The Howling. These are all really good ones. Um, and three of them came out in the same year, which is yeah. I was going to ask you about that because uh, I think that's really interesting. Eighty one just seemed to be a year for the resurgence of the werewolf movie because it really had been relegated to B movie status by that point, like sixties, seventies. So I don't know what it is about the early eighties that suddenly brought back a revival of taking werewolf movies seriously. But these three, pretty pretty good. Well, what I think happened is monster makeup caught up to transformations, so they could do these amazing scenes. Like Rick Baker did the the work in American World and American Werewolf in London, and and uh, you know that's what it's famous for is that scene of him transforming into this wolf. And The Howling, which came out a few months earlier, has a similar scene. Wolfen does not. That's that's a whole different story with uh, about uh, you know gentrification, but uh, more of a thriller. It's a fascinating movie because it's, it's great. It's just like a a hard boiled New York cop story just with wolves instead of ser like a serial killer. It's just like a wolf. And they slowly yeah. get to that point. So I think it's interesting. I thought it was a really cool, hard-boiled New York story and a lot of good New York visuals. And it just feels like a, a detective story, like a cop story. But yeah. instead of tracking a killer, they're tracking supernatural wolves. Yeah, it's great. I really love it. Um, I watched it probably for the first time last year. And just really loved how different it was from all the other ones. And and there was actually a fourth film that came out, a werewolf film called Full Moon High in 1981, uh, later in the year. <laughs> so yeah, big year for werewolves. I went with an American werewolf in London on this because I have some very strong connections to that film in that, uh, and I established this by saying I saw the Frank Langella Dracula when I was very young. Um, 
but I begged my parents to take me to see an American werewolf in London for my seventh birthday and they obliged. So I don't know what that says about me or them, but I distinctly remember sitting in a theater and watching this at seven years old and my older brother sat behind us. And every time Griffin Dunn came on the screen as dead Griffin Dunn, he would grab my feet under the seat and just scare the hell out of me. So uh, it kind of traumatized me for a while, but uh, it also makes me really love this film because I have such a connection to it. And even if you separate that connection, it's just made really well, kind of funny. It's a John Landis film, uh, has that, that great transformational scene and, I even had, <clears throat> excuse me, my brother had the soundtrack, which is just every song that has the word moon in it, basically. Um, but it was great. I love that about it. And, you know, it, it's sort of tongue in cheek. Uh, yeah, it, it beats out everything else, in my opinion. We agree on this one. I, I love American World in London. I think it's just the perfect mix of absurdity, humor, and genuine scares. And the transformation is truly astounding. Uh, I actually watched this one in the past, probably one of the first horror movies I really watched probably when I was a teenager. And uh, it, it, it stayed with me then. I really enjoyed it, even then when I was mm -hmm. scared of everything. I really liked the movie. And uh, I think it just walks that, that line. It never falls into being completely silly. Uh, and, and the werewolf stuff is genuinely scary. And it doesn't seem hokey in any way. Uh, except for the dead Griffin Dunn, but but is actually quite amusing and, and adds to it. Um, so yeah, I, I really have always liked this movie too. The thing that's interesting to me is what I, what I knew about it at the time was that this was the movie that uh, that Michael Jackson had seen, which is why he hired John Landis to to direct a thriller video. That's right. In the eighties. Um, yeah. So I don't know what this is about Michael Jackson, but that's that's how that came about. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's just really memorable, uh, more so than. The Howling, which I had seen several times. And even though that's a Joe Dante film and I kind of love it, um, it doesn't really have the staying power that an American Werewolf in London does. And we kind of grazed over Ginger Snaps, which is a 2000 Canadian film. Um, very Carrie-esque with, with werewolves. Sort of a really good present day werewolf film, which there aren't too many of anymore. But uh, I think it's worth at least mentioning here that it was it wasn't too bad. Yeah, I had seen that for the first time because this was your recommendation. I'd never even heard of it, and it was pretty entertaining. I think I think it's it's smart when you combine those kind of things when you combine puberty and uh, becoming a monster in some ways. A lot yeah. of those things, like if you do it well, it it can be really effective. If you do it poorly, you end up with Teen Wolf. <laughs> so. Which has its own merits, I have to say. It has its own merits. It depends through which lens you view the film, I guess. All right, so this is what I'm actually pretty excited about because I think this is where we show who we are. Um, best vampire film. This is actually my favorite category, yes. Yeah, me too. I, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, what were your picks? So my picks were Fright Night and The Lost Boys. Okay. And mine were Near Dark and Let the Right One In. What did you pick as the as the winner? So I picked The Lost Boys, which to me is kind of the quintessential vampire movie. I just think it hits everything really right. Yeah. And um, because it, in my mind, the way that I see vampire movies, I think they're all a little bit silly if you think too much about it. The whole idea of, of, of being vampires. 
So it plays on kind of the comedy angle a little bit, but the vampires themselves are pretty scary. So that so it works in that in that way. The way it's shot is really interesting. I think it's the best thing Corey Haim and Corey Feldman ever did. Uh, <laughs> I just think that they work really well together in that movie. I, I like the idea of having kids who actually believe, because a lot of things in other movies is that people don't believe, but you've got these two kids who almost believe too much. And so right. you're able, they're kind of able to carry you along in terms of never dismissing what's actually happening. And, uh, and it's got a good twist at the end because you're trying to figure out who the head vampire is. And I think that's a, a, a fun reveal at the end. And anytime you can have a cranky grandpa in a movie, I'm all about that as well. So it just hits all the notes for me. And it's very possible just because I saw it at the right time when I was younger, but it's always stayed with me. And when I watch it now, it holds up really well. Uh, Joel Schumacher was just really good at creating a, a, a sense of dread in that movie. And, and he did a really good job of not showing you the vampires for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went back and watched it again, I realized it was mostly from their point of view for almost the first half of the movie. You don't really even see them. So I just like the way he builds that anticipation of actually seeing them. So just yeah. the beats all work and I, and I really have always loved it. So that that is my pick. Yeah, it's a great one. I mean, I you mentioned the way it's shot and I, I feel like it's very MTV. Like it's it's quick and young and like vibrant and uh, just really fits that era, which is great about it. I love that. And one thing I read, you'll appreciate this, is that the note Corey uh, Feldman was given was to act like one of the 80s action stars. So... He's literally doing a Rambo impression for the entire film. He has the red headband, has the voice. I, I can't believe I didn't notice that. Yeah. And that's the thing, too. I would love how they both play, uh, you know, the Frog Brothers. They, they pretend they're these vampire hunters. But then in the scene where they actually face a vampire, they are scared to death. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Like those things, like they, it rings true where it's like they're still just children, right? They, they think that they're not. So all those little things. It's almost surprising to say in a, in a, a vampire movie, but I just like the characters that they were they were well drawn in the short time that we were with them, and uh, th- that's part of why I think the movie was enjoyed. Yeah, I agree. I, I really liked it a lot. Um, I had seen it a million times, but going back to it, I it, it's something that if it were on, I would never turn it off. I would watch it all the way through, no matter what. I agree, and it and it definitely helps to have Kiefer Sutherland, who is just a wonderful bad guy. I mean, he he's just really good at it. Did a lot of good bad guys in the 80s. Yeah. I, I, I always appreciate how much he's hateable. Yeah. Uh, one other thing to appreciate is Timmy Capello, the saxophone player. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is just amazing every time I see it. And uh, there's, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but on SNL, they did a spoof of him with John Hamm, where uh, it's, it's a send up. Uh, it's called Sergio. And it's a digital short where, Andy Samberg comes across Fred Armisen on the street and he's a beggar or something. And Andy Samberg steps on his dream catcher. <laughs> so Fred Armisen curses him like in thinner. And then every time Andy Samberg goes anywhere, John Hamm busts through the wall as Timmy Capello's character and breaks out a saxophone shirtless and plays very, very uh, memorable. I, okay. uh, what's interesting, just one more note on, mm-hmm. on him, which, <laughs> uh, I remember seeing him play, ended up playing for Tina Turner. That's which, right. Uh, you see him a lot through that too. So, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, there aren't that many well-known saxophone players. I think it's like him and Clarence Clemens, and then that's... And Coltrane. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> post-jazz, like, in the MTV era, we'll, we'll say. Hate putting aside jazz-era saxophone players. This is strictly in terms of pop music. There's Timmy Capello and there's John Coltrane. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, all right, so for my pick, in the same year... Uh, vastly different tone uh i picked catherine bigelow's near dark which is really something i love because it it's depressing <laughs> it's not hey we're young vampires and we're living it up it's like oh shit i'm stuck with this forever and it sucks i'm gonna be a little kid for eternity and it just really it's like a realistic almost like a western dealing with vampirism and it's just so dark and moody and really, they're kind of a good double feature, this and the Lost Boys, because they're just so different. But there are also a ton of similarities. One thing that in particular is the backlit over the hill shot of the vampires standing at the top, which would go on to be used in subsequent horror films too. But uh, they have a lot of DNA that they share, but uh, just vastly different tones. And this is the one that I was saying, like for you and me, is is very representative of of us. And That's uh, true. I, to to be honest, I was thinking about this, and I realized that I think I like my horror movies to be from the eighties for a specific reason. I think part of it is because a lot of the ones in the eighties brought a little more humor to them. Right. And I like my horror cut with humor a little bit, but I also think that it's like the special effects were good enough to be scary but not great enough where you couldn't know that you were watching a movie. Right. And I think that's important to me. I think that, that for my own mind's eyes, being a recovering scaredy cat, I think it's important for me <laughs> to be able to differentiate that I'm watching a movie. And the 80s were kind of perfect for that. I could see it and it looks scary, but then you know that it's not that real. You can see right. a little bit of wires. You can see a little bit. Uh, so I, 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 as I was psychoanalyzing myself, watching all these movies, I think that that is what I came to. But Near Dark, it's something really interesting that I'd never seen before. Like the idea of using a blood transfusion to actually turn a vampire back to human. Yeah. I had never really seen that before. And I thought that was really interesting, an interesting idea of whether or not that could be true. Yeah, uh, it, it definitely has its own tropes that it creates and, and kind of goes against some of the other ones that are. Yeah. And there's no levity like the vampires are genuinely just mean and nasty and miserable. And, and I like, so as Kiefer Sutherland always plays a good bad guy, I mean, Bill Paxton always plays a good dirtbag. So you have yeah, he does. a dirtbag vampire. I mean, that's just perfect. It's such a great role for him. Um, you mentioned the comedy, and that got me to thinking about, we're going to talk about horror comedies in a minute, but I started thinking about why is it that horror walks such a fine line between horror and comedy, maybe more than other genres do? I feel like it's so much easier to get to humor from horror than anything else. And maybe it's because there are other ends of the spectrum or you're, you need that in that situation. I don't know. Yeah, I think they're opposite ends of the spectrum, but of the same coin where they're kind of intense emotions. And I think that for some people being scared and when you're scared, being able to laugh, it helps add some levity. It helps to break that fear. Because think about when someone right. gets scared, a jump scare, you usually end it by laughing at yourself. I just think it's kind of a way to psychologically deal with the fact that you were just scared out of your mind. That's why I've always thought 
that I like the humor to help break the spell of me being afraid of something. I just think that that for me personally, as someone who's never really loved, loved horror movies, I think I've always liked that part of it. Uh, and plus, yeah. it, plus as someone who watches a lot of movies and analyzes these things as you watch them, the idea of horror in lots of ways is silly. If you take it to its natural end if you take it far enough it becomes absurd i mean almost anything does so i think that you end up if you lean too far into the absurdity it can become funny but i do think it takes a really good filmmaker to walk those lines without ever falling into dracula dead and loving it or something like that or even <laughs> as much as i love it love it first bite which can be if you lean too far into being silly then you kind of lose it but yeah it, it's a good filmmaker to, to walk that line uh and landis obviously had directed uh blues brothers and <laughs> other comedy classics by that point. And so I think the styles do tend to lend themselves as well. I think that's why he was effective at doing American World. So oh, I'll just go with Fright Night really quick, which I, I I really, Fright Night is an enjoyable movie, which I always recommend to people. I think it's fun. Uh, and again, where it's kind of, the vampire himself is not a joke. I mean, you know, that character, I think that that's important too. Uh, even going back and watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. I think the correct mix is the monsters should never be silly. Right. Whereas the people around them can be. And that is, is kind of the proper mix. So in Fright Night, the vampire is scary and cool and pretty nasty. Uh, and the characters around him end up being kind of dumb in, in, in their own ways. And the humor comes from them dealing with what's essentially a vampire living next door. Uh, it's and, and it also plays on the the idea of whether or not you know people who star in vampire movies are actually vampire hunters and things like that. So it actually uh, hits on the idea of movies in real life, which which is fun too. But um, yeah, it, it's really well done, and it's got this cynical person who doesn't believe it's real, who right. is paying for that. So it it's just got. I think that's what happens in the '80s as well. That you you start to get those movies with smart asses who think they know better. Uh, because they know that we know that we think we know better because we've seen all this stuff before. And so how do you how do you you mess with it? Uh, you kind of play off of that idea, that cynicism, and then ramp up the scares. Uh, and Fright Night's pretty good at that. Yeah. We're going to see a lot of that down the road in, in uh, one of the other nominees, too. Um, yeah, it's, it's a fun film. Uh, it definitely feels comedic to me. But I do love the comedy around it. I think it's a decent balance of the two. And and uh, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. I love the the TV host angle to it, which is really cool. Uh, those old shows with horror hosts are just like my favorite thing in the world. Um, so it was fun to see that. Uh, yeah, and then Let the Right One In from 2008. Uh, this is a Swedish film that I picked because I, I think it's so unique. and. It's it's kind of like tranquil in a way, uh, sort of doesn't go super high, it doesn't go super low, even though it's depressing. <laughs> but I really enjoyed the angle of it um, with the kids. You know, that's kind of new to me, and I like that it's not the typical American vampire film. I was really happy to revisit it uh, because I, I really love it. Yeah, I'd seen this before as well. And I, and I do like the idea of, of playing off of the idea of adolescence and, and being a vampire and, and what that means. Because it is kind of depressing. You realize that you're going to be 
a child forever. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's, that's handled really well. So it's hard to figure out a way to get new takes on these things. And, and it felt like a fresh take. And, and that's why I think it stands up really well. Okay, now we can move on to Best Haunted House Film. I, well, who are your nominees for this one? Again, I went fairly well-known for mine. I picked uh, Amityville Horror and Poltergeist. I think mine are pretty well known as well. Uh, just maybe a little later, I went with Paranormal Activity and The Conjuring. And even though I picked those two, and I think they have a lot of cultural significance, in the end, I went with the Amityville Horror as my pick because I just think it's the original. Well, I mean, it's not the original horror film, but I think in in modern uh, horror, it really kind of sets the bar. And I guess I'm going against what I said at the beginning about not letting culture affect my decision but um it really you know if you if you look at it objectively it's it's a lot of fun it, it stands alone and kind of over the top performances but really good and I, I mean it's genuinely scary even though i think i read something recently that the whole thing was just a hoax by the real estate agent or something to yeah, there's a lot to this because i actually live on long island and, and this story is kind of well known yeah here and and yeah, I mean, the true story is actually kind of depressing and gruesome uh, about the murders. And this whole thing, the supernatural element was, it's the story told by the people that moved into the house afterwards. Mm -hmm. And this is their story. I mean, they, they stood by it. They have always stood by the story, but it's it's all started to fall apart as years have gone on and uh, starts to seem almost silly. But the original story of the murders is, is terrible enough, really, uh, that it doesn't need the supernatural element. But, but yeah, so it, it, it as more people talk about it, it's come out more and more that that, that story doesn't necessarily hold up. Right. So what did you pick for this? So first I'm going to say, this may be uh, my bias coming in. So I never liked Margot Kidder as Lois Lane in Superman. So I always thought she was a bad Lois Lane. Mm -hmm. So I thought I just, you know, maybe it was my own personal bias of just not thinking she was good Lois Lane. But it turns out, you know, she was in two of these horror movies that we end up watching. So she's in Amityville Horror, and she's up being in Black Christmas. And I think I can say definitively, I just think that Margot Kidder is not a good actress. I think that's uh, that's what that's the conclusion I've come to. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's the way that I see it. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that makes Amityville Horror worse just because she's in it. <laughs> so that was hard for me. So I ended up picking The Conjuring. Okay. And the reason for that is I think that The Conjuring is the best version of Amityville Horror. Mm -hmm. I just think it's a, it's just a better, it's a better version of that movie. It's right. really well done. Uh, I found it genuinely scary. And the way people acted in it felt a little more true. My big issue with people in haunted house movies is why, why they don't leave, of course. Uh, and, and to be honest, that's what falls apart for me in Poltergeist, mm -hmm. where you get a resolution, and then they're like, you know what, we're going to stay one more night. We're going to put yeah. the kids in the same room where they got sucked through a portal, and I'm going to take a bath. And you just lost me there, where it's like, are you really? Like, just get in the car and leave. Like, there's not one yeah. more thing. Like, you're, like, I don't care if they tell you the house is clean of spirits. You should just leave. 
Yeah, you know, I watched that again last night and and exactly what you're saying, that whole sort of epilogue was completely unnecessary. I mean, yeah. you could have put some of those elements into it earlier in the film and cut it off 20 minutes uh, earlier than, than it is. And boy, yeah, my wife is terrified of that film because she watched it when she was really little. So I, I had to put on closed captioning and keep it very low. And uh, she even heard it and was was a little upset by it. <laughs> but uh, if we want to start talking about that, um, I have a lot to say about Poltergeist. <laughs> well, I, well, we'll get back to Poltergeist in a second. Yeah. But speaking in that same point, that's why I thought Paranormal Activity was actually really good. Not only did it use the found footage thing in, in a, a really interesting way, but they explain why she can't leave, right? right. The point is that it's not the house, that it's her. And so they do away with the idea of, well, why don't they just leave? And I thought that that was a really good twist to put on it to help, you know, get that out of the way. So yeah. I like that. Uh, I will just say quick about Amityville Horror as well, that I was watching it with my wife and as people who live on Long Island uh, where there's water everywhere. I think that the new version of Amityville Horror is just looking out the window when it's pouring and seeing how close they live to the waterline and uh, <laughs> figuring their house is going to get flooded. But that maybe is a personal thing on my part. But that, that, that's way, that would seem like the, the more of a horror movie than anything else. Yeah, the the remake is climate change. Yeah, yeah. Remake is like, why did we move so close to to a river? What are we doing? I, you know, I I uh, almost went with the Conjuring for this uh, for similar reasons to you, and I, you know, there's so much to like about it, and I think it really it does a good job of sort of going back to what I was saying before about Dracula and those early films, like using darkness and and really creating this sense of, of fear through that. And, and I really love about this, and this is something that happens in Poltergeist too, and, and uh, I think really kind of starts in the 80s, is the idea of ghost hunters coming in with technology. And in the conjuring, I love that they throw it back and and all of the all of the technology is super old. But it's still using that trope that I think kind of started in the 80s with let's bring people in with all these gadgets and capture these ghosts, which is amazing. And then I, I like the the ultimate version of that, of course, is paranormal activity where the entire thing is that. Um, and I think that's why paranormal activity works so well, because it's it has sort of that documentary style. And it's and, and really the first thing other than the Blair Witch Project to do this. And it it just does such a good job of taking that technology trope and just immersing the film in it. And Mika boy, definitely wins boyfriend of the year because yeah. uh just to think I am going to fight my wife's spirit ghost with a camera and I'm gonna take care of this. <laughs> and just to continue to double down, I mean, I'm not sure uh that I would love my girlfriend that much <laughs> to kind of like wait in there and, and handle it that way so i mean good for him yeah exactly the other thing that, that's funny as i was watching all these movies you realize that horror movies usually have dogs in them right uh, and the dog is always kind of like the first person to realize that something is there. Mm -hmm. and i think that's really funny because as someone that has cats i think that cats would be the absolute worst for being in a horror movie which is why you never see cats in horror movies because i was watching one of them on DVD and I pressed the tray to open the DVD tray and my cat ran out of the room. <laughs> that that was too much horror for, for a cat. So I don't think a cat is a terrible barometer 
of things that are scary in your home. That's funny because our cat will perk up when she hears something outside. She won't necessarily run away right away, but if we're in bed and she perks up, I immediately, because I watch all of these horror movies, think, oh, she hears someone. There's someone on our balcony coming in to kill us. And then if she doesn't investigate, I go back to sleep. But if she gets up, because she will go take a look, and then if she sees something, she's out. But she'll at least check it out first. Um, but she might be different than other cats, I think. Uh, I just would not trust my cat. They, they hear like the rustling of a piece of paper, and they are alert. They're just ready. That, that's that's too much alertness. And I just I just don't think they're good to tell you if you're going to die. I think that's a bad, bad thing to put your hopes in your cat for that one. All right, let's move on to best folk horror film. This is a really cool category. Uh, possibly my favorite type of horror. So we're going to stop here. This is actually really where we break. Because okay. I would love for you to explain to the people what folk horror is. Uh, maybe I'm asking you to explain it to me, but mostly for the people. Uh, I'd like for you to explain this one. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, you could kind of put some modern stuff in there too, but mostly I feel like it's sort of rooted in tradition um, and community. That's kind of a big thing around it. Uh, I guess if you look at the Blair Witch Project, that could be possibly considered folk horror and there's not really community in there, but it has the totems. It's it's like earth-based. And I think that it it just really is almost about secret societies in a way. Uh, the things that we look at here, uh, I believe they all have, well, the witch doesn't necessarily have a secret society, but that's actually set back in in a much earlier time. But yeah, I think it does in a way. But I think the touchstones of it are really uh nature and community. There's a there's a really good documentary about folk horror. Uh I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's a few years old and it's maybe two to three hours long and it really gets into the history of it and everything that's that's considered folk horror. Uh it's worth a watch. And um so yeah, what did you pick for this? So for this one, I think and mostly seated to you again, because I was oh, right. iffy on this whole category. And I, I went Blair Witch Project was mine. It's the only one that seemed to match what I, what I thought we were looking for. And uh, I believe the other three were yours. So Blair Witch Project was mine. Right. And I populated it with The Witch, The Wicker Man, uh, fantastic, and Midsommar, um, which is very recent. Um, did you watch all of these? I did. And and what did you think? What, how was your introduction to folk horror? Okay, so at the risk of offending people, I realized that this is not one of my favorite genres. Okay. I could give quite a few reasons, but I found, I just found them to be a little too slow for me. As I said, I'm not big on just kind of waiting and like just atmosphere doesn't necessarily do it for me. So, and I just don't need to see this many people dancing around a maypole. Like just, these are just things that are not, entertaining to me so i wasn't particularly in love with this genre right um, and midsommar i personally just thought it was way too long mm -hmm. uh, it, i was saying before that i think one of the the most fun things about horror is that they're mostly pretty short they get in they get out they're entertaining and midsommar is almost two and a half hours long and that just seems like way too long 
for a horror movie for in my personal opinion uh and just uh, that was the horror for me just just kind of feeling like i don't i'm not sure why this is taking so long to get where we're going so right. you really don't want to watch ari aster's follow-up to this then Bo is afraid because that's like three and a half hours yeah i i mean it actually is something that i am trying to to watch but i'm trying to build up to it yeah it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot for me so based on default i think i went with the blair witch project which is something i'd seen when it came out and i just thought it was something totally new and and uh I didn't love it. I didn't even love the Blair Witch Project when it came out. I didn't love it necessarily as a movie. I thought it was effective. Uh, didn't love it. But I also do think that you can't talk about the Blair Witch Project as a movie without talking about the Blair Witch Project as a marketing campaign. Right. Uh, you know, for anyone that wasn't around when it first came out, it's one of the most effective marketing campaigns of a movie that has ever been done uh, using the early internet to create a website that seems to be Put together by kids who are searching for these people and they left flyers around in various places and, and all of this uh these things that and no one from the movie made any appearances so it all felt very much like found footage of real people who had gone missing uh, just a, a really effective smart way of coming about a horror movie which felt completely new yeah i, I think it's a case of right place right time because it was it was really the infancy of the internet and you didn't know if you could trust the internet. I mean, we know now that we can't, but back then it was, uh, it was so rudimentary. And I remember because I grew up in Pennsylvania, maybe, I don't know, 40 minutes North of Maryland where this took place. And I just remember seeing that website and was just so perplexed. Is this real? Is this not real? Uh, they've basically created a legend in present day, which is really cool. And yeah, tremendous marketing. And it really defined horror for at least 10 years uh, and beyond. I mean, the, the found footage aspect of it is just, uh, this launched it. And, you know, we look at paranormal activity and um, there are plenty of other things around it that that rely on the found footage. But this kicked it off and uh, just what a juggernaut. Yeah, so so that gets my my vote almost, almost by default just because between you and me and whoever's listening, I, I, I didn't particularly feel like <laughs> it's just not, it's not my, it's not my wheelhouse. Uh, a little too, I, so I guess I mentioned before that I like my movies cut with a little bit of comedy and I feel like these are just a little too self-serious, just, just a little too much for me. Uh, I don't know, Wicker Man's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be by def uh, that might be inadvertent. That was part of the problem with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a wild movie. That was yeah, a wild one. I I love that film. It's it's one of three films in what they call the unholy trinity. With um, the original was uh, Blood on Satan's Claw, or actually I might have it backwards. Uh, the original was Witchfinder General with uh, Vincent Price, and then Blood on Satan's Claw, and this, and it was kind of a. Uh, spate of folk horror films in the late 60s and early 70s and but this was the final one of them and and really the most memorable i think and as far as i know the only one remade with nicholas cage it's true it's interesting thing when i was watching the wicker man what i found myself thinking too is i'm surprised that uh martin mcdonough has hasn't done a, 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 his own version of, of folk horror at this point because i feel like that he's got the whole pastoral movie thing down i feel like yeah it would be perfect for him to make 
a movie like that, like The Wicker Man. I agree. I, I We should pitch that to him. So I picked The Witch for this because it's unique in the year it came out. I think that what Robert Eggers is doing, this was his first film. And I think what he's doing, uh, and, he, and he also does with subsequent films like The Lighthouse um, and The Northman, I think he's just so unique. And I think the story is a simple one. And it it kind of goes back to really an old folktale, but it's told in, in such a great way. He's big on production design. He uses authenticity as much as he can. There were things on the set from the actual era that the film takes place. The, the language is unique to that time. And it just does such a good job of, of building suspense for me. I love the slow burn and maybe not having a, such a big payoff it's kind of different from you from what you're saying but i, I like in this particular it. genre that that's that's the way that i feel and maybe that's just what i've been conditioned to uh so it, it's interesting you say that because i'm watching the witch i realized as i was watching it that it's a movie that i could appreciate but not necessarily enjoy mm-hmm. uh, where i saw all of it i thought it was beautifully shot and i appreciated all the period detail but i couldn't bring it just over the hill to fully enjoy it. Whereas I think The Northman is the Eggers film I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. which maybe that says something about me, I don't know. But uh, Great that movie I really enjoyed. Whereas The Witch, I, I appreciated what he had done and just couldn't bring myself to get there. Well, as a folk horror fan, uh, for me, it, it kind of checks all the boxes. And, and uh, it's funny because I loathe period pieces. I cannot watch them. But I sat through this and just really, really enjoyed it. And I think it's it's cast really well. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy, just she really looks of that time to me. Yeah. And, and uh, of course, Black Phillip, the demon goat, is super amazing. Um, but yeah, I really loved it. And uh, it gets my pick for the best folk horror film Oscar. I did think for a second that I was watching The Witch that I was going to get a Puritan Fight Club. And I wasn't sure if that was going to be a good thing or a bad thing. Or, I mean, just the payoff at the end. That's a really good and all that. So in my mind, I was like, is that where this is going? And that's not really where it went. And I, I do want to see that, though. A Puritan Fight Club. You can go with that. Everybody can take that one. Make your own movie. I think yeah. I, maybe Fight Club Time Machine, where somebody just fights everybody throughout history. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> not abraham lincoln though is known as one tough customer you don't want that's to right um we talked about midsomar a little bit um i really enjoyed it i think it's it's bright daytime horror which i love and and uh i think that in and of itself is kind of scary knowing that it's daytime you can see everything that's coming or if you can't uh it's going to be so messed up that it happens right in front of you in full view like the rituals in this film i I mean i think it kind of unravel like everything slowly unravels in it and it gives you an interesting story really i think a film on grief with uh florence pugh's character danny kind of going through that and having a shitty boyfriend and then maybe even a revenge film in a way (laughs) yeah i really liked it I, i i like ari aster a lot i think he pushes the boundaries and and um, is a is a pretty strong voice that we have today. So even though I didn't pick this one, I really, I really enjoyed it. Let's move on to best horror comedy. Uh, this one's fun. And 
Um, there are a lot of them, so it was tough to narrow them down. But uh, my picks were Shaun of the Dead and Return of the Living Dead. What did you pick? My picks were House and What We Do in the Shadows. Awesome. I kind of went back and forth on this because the, I think all four of them are really good. But I ended up going with Shaun of the Dead because I think Edgar Wright is just such a smart filmmaker. I think his visual style is amazing and the sound design is incredible. And I've seen some other sort of zombie comedies in the past and none of them can hold a candle to this. I, I just think it's it's real life, which is kind of bland and boring and dealing with customer service before the zombies come and they're sort of trickled in. You can hear things on the periphery about what's happening or you'll see somebody in the background chasing birds and eating them or something. And um, I, I just think that Edgar Wright is such a smart filmmaker and he and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost uh, just work so beautifully together. And, and Edgar Wright's film knowledge, I think, is what really makes this for me. He has the technical abilities, but he also just has such a deep love of film that he can reference things uh, very subtly and just make them his own, sort of like Tarantino, although his references are a little more overt, but um, he just, yeah, I think he nails it with this and and uh, I love it. Um, yeah, Shaun of the Dead for me. What, what did you pick? I 100% agree with that one. Awesome. I did grapple with it as well, but at the end of the day, I really love when you juxtapose the idea of real life zombies versus real life zombies, where yeah. the idea of our own drudgery is, is almost zombie-like in its own, which is why it took them so long to realize they were falling under a zombie apocalypse because you put your head down and you go about your zombie-like day without really seeing what's around you. And that yeah. and that's what it is. It's a, it's a zombie movie, but it's a it's a coming-of-age story and it's, it's about how to get out of your own rut. There's a lot of things. And again, done in the wrong hands, it could all come off as really silly, but it's, it's handled just delicately enough where it doesn't hit you over the head with anything until they start hitting people in the head with uh, cricket bats and all that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really gory and scary and um, not all the heroes survive, which is, which is always good. So, so it plays it, it really, really straight. So hundred percent agree. Um, I will say what we do in the shadows was a close second. Mm -hmm. uh, just, yeah. <laughs> what, what else can you say about it? I mean, it, it, it is really, really funny. I, I don't even know how to get into it. I mean, it, it's, um, just really well-written. I mean, the, the mockumentary style, which I really have gotten tired of, is perfect for this type of thing. Yeah. It's a little like Vampire Office. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, revisited it. I watched the show a few times and it didn't really land for me. And I had seen this previously, but uh, re-watching it, I, I really appreciated everything that's in it. Um, I think Taika Waititi being more of a name now kind of made it jump out at me a little more. But um yeah, it's really funny. And and of course, Matt Berry, uh, one of my favorites. Uh, everybody listening, if you haven't watched Toast of London, go watch it. It's amazing. Um, yeah. And two and, of the three people who were in Flight of the Concords, which is great. Right. So, um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think the TV show in some ways uh, dimmed my feeling about the movie. So going back and watching it, I've forgotten how good it was. Yeah, it's smart. I mean, it, it, it kind of subverts, you know, like pop culture vampires in a way um and i did love I, i'd forgotten about this but i really love the lost boys reference 
I didn't know you liked worms. <laughs> That's exactly. amazing. So good. Uh, just smart and funny. I loved it. Um, and, then, and then we also put Return of the Living Dead in there. Which is really interesting to me. There, there's some you know, interesting backstory to that and how yeah. we end up getting a sequel to The Living Dead. Yeah, Joe Russo and, and George Romero, who wrote Night of the Living Dead, went their separate ways. And uh, as I understand it, Russo got the Living Dead title somehow, and he could take it and do whatever he wanted with it. Um, and Romero could no longer use it. And this is what he ended up with. Uh, a 1985 film that's insane, directed by Dan O'Bannon, one of John Carpenter's contemporaries. And... I love it. I love it because it's it's punk rock and it's it's so 80s. It's just it's very 80s. Just a woman who needs to take her clothes off for no reason at all. Uh, yeah. But and the that woman part is that the punk rock people, they actually have heart. They do. Yeah, they're actually they're actually kind of nice and they care for each other. So so I like that. That, that was that was a nice twist on that. Yeah. Uh, uh, the woman who takes her clothes off is Linnea Quigley, who would go on to be sort of a staple of 80s horror films um, and some in the 70s, but she's really great. And what made me laugh about watching Return of the Living Dead is I realized that James Karen is responsible for two apocalypses in movies in the 80s because he's also the reason that Poltergeist happens because he builds homes on a gravesite. And then in this movie, he's the one who releases the living dead. That's so, right. James Karen's responsible for two almost world-ending apocalypses. So <laughs> this is such a just such a silly typical story in the 80s. Like two employees knock over a drum of toxic gas and and chaos ensues. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh it, it's not Shaun of the Dead, but it's I think it's really culturally relevant. And I think it's uh if you Go beyond Night of the Living Dead. To me, this is one of the most important early zombie films. And it's not even great. It's just fun. And that's really all you can ask for from an 80s horror comedy. So if you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch it. Um, all right, let's go on to Best Slasher Film. The fourth one is House, which we didn't we didn't talk about. So this is the 1985 House with William Catt, who we, uh, was also in Carrie. And, um, you know, I expected to just, I expected this movie to be dumb watching it again. It was something that I watched years ago. Uh, but I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised that it still holds up pretty well. Uh, deals with some Vietnam flashback things in terms of the horror stuff. Uh, just a true haunted house monster in a closet, but expands into something much bigger. Very silly in, in some respects, but some of the horror is genuinely scary. And, uh, it, hits, it checks both the boxes for me where it's funny and it's actually kind of scary. And uh, I would recommend it to anyone who hasn't actually seen it. Yeah, it's fun. Um, I didn't expect too much revisiting it. I saw it probably when it came out and that was the last time. But So I went into it a little cynical, but I, I really came out enjoying it. And it really is funny. I mean, there, there are so many nods to other horror films in it um like craven real estate is the you know the real estate agent selling the house and even the, the neighbor trope and, and all of that plays on all of these these things yeah and the even there's kind of a halloween-esque steady cam shot at the beginning around the house um and it was actually directed by steve minor who we'll talk about in a little bit because he directed uh another one of our nominees 
And my question with this, though, is did it invent Billy the Big Mouth Bass, that thing that hangs on the wall and talks and flops? Because this film has a giant marlin that flops around. And I hadn't seen that before, but once I did, I thought, oh, this is that stupid bass that you saw at Spencer Gifts throughout the 80s and 90s. But I don't know. That's a great question. I wonder if they should have been that guy and tried to get royalties for it. Yeah. Um, also, interestingly, Kane Hodder did the stunts in this, and he would go on to be Jason in some of the later Friday the 13th films. That is a perfect segue. It is, because now... We're going on to the best slasher film. What were your picks for this one? So my picks for this one were Scream and Friday the 13th Part 3. That's I'll explain why I picked Part 3 uh, after you choose your, you show us your picks. That's the one directed by Steve Miner from House. So I picked uh, Halloween and A Nightmare on Elm Street. There, there's kind of a limited uh, selection in this, I guess, as far as the big slashers go, even though there was a ton of slasher films in the 80s. And um, but so many of them are also sequels of, of these. So that's right. part of it too, yeah. But these, I think, cover kind of the original, the, the most well-known slashers. Um, so what was your pick for this one? So my pick for this one was Halloween, which I think is kind of an easy pick. Mm -hmm. I just think that it, really encapsulates everything that you're going to see going forward and you just think on a low for a low budget movie it looks really good i just love john carpenter's use of the long shot and uh you know he just stays on things i just think all that builds suspense um i think that he just knew how to craft and frame a horror movie for maximum scares and um i just think everyone's been copying ever since Although it was interesting that when we get to the other uh, categories where we watch Black Christmas, we realize that the opening of Halloween, he actually clearly took from the opening of Black Christmas. And I never knew that. So having seen it, that was kind of a cool little thing. Because uh, we, we also see the POV camera thing almost starting with Halloween. But it turns out that it didn't. But everyone else, I think, stole it from him <laughs> once it was done in Halloween and went with it from there. So it's just got all, all the tropes that everybody ends up using. It's got the final girl. It's got teenagers. It's got the slasher with a knife. It's, it's all of those things, but it still feels fresh to this day, even though we've seen it a million times. So that that is my pick. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement um, for all the same reasons. I think, like you mentioned, um, the things with Black Christmas, and uh, he definitely lifted some things, but uh, is... Part of that, I think, is he did some things because of a low budget and makes that budget work really well. And also, there are just some good good things that he lifts. And because Halloween is so prominent, um, he's often seen as the, the creator of these things. But yeah, it really sets the table for everything. Jason, Freddy, Scream, even, like everything. It's truly there's like horror before and after Halloween. And yeah, like you said, it, it holds up to this day. Um, I just watched it recently, so I didn't revisit it for this, but I do remember just seeing it and, and not feeling like there's anything about it that I wouldn't just sit and enjoy in 2023 versus, 
you know, 2000 or farther back because it just, it just holds up so well. And yeah. And not wasting time on like, we don't need to know Michael. Like it's not that important. You know, like we don't have to think about him as anything other than the personification of evil. And so right. it's like, that kind of helps too. Like just this idea of cutting it to the bone, uh, almost an unknown faceless killer is the scariest thing you can have. So even that aspect. So this is interesting. We were talking about things that set the table. And the reason that I picked Friday the 13th part three instead of any of the other ones was, I mean, the first one, obviously, Jason is not the killer. And um, by the third one, the third one is actually what introduces the Jason that we know, which mm -hmm. is the Jason in the hockey mask. It's where he finds the hockey mask. Right. And I could be wrong, but I feel like it's the last time we actually see his face because there is a part where you see his face at the end, even though it's a dream. It's a kind of a dream sequence. Mm -hmm. but could be a space, could not, but it's, I think it's the last time we ever see anything like that. But it's where the hockey mask comes into play. But as I was watching part three, so what I was struck by is by the time you get to part three, Jason is the protagonist of the movie. And it feels to me like the first time that you go into a horror movie and instead of rooting for people to survive, which is what you get in the ones before this, in part three, you're there to see people die. Like you're almost there to see how Jason will murder people, which I think is slightly different. So I, I, don't, I could be wrong, and, but that was the feeling that I was taking as I was watching it. It's the first time I think the tone shifts where instead of you watching it through the perspective of the people who are running from the killer or trying to survive, you're there to see the murders. That's the whole purpose of being there. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, um, but I can see how that would be. We're going to talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street in a minute, and I think that really does that quite a bit. So maybe Friday the 13th part three sort of started that. Yeah. It's an interesting, uh, an interesting film. It's, I remember seeing this maybe not in a theater, but I remember the, the ads in the newspaper for it and seeing commercials and it really did have a different kind of tone to it than the first two. And yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe people in the early eighties were all about watching murders and uh, yeah, it's, it's like horror suddenly went from being afraid to like a spectator sport where you're you're cheering on the murderer. That's interesting. Um, yeah, it, but it's it's a it's a good one. Arguably, this and four I think are the best of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. I think they're the 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 movie at to the core of what we know it to be. Like it's the perfect encapsulation. You're gonna tell someone to see a Friday the 13th movie. These bowls are probably two you're gonna send someone to because they perfectly capture what what it is that you're there to see. Yeah, and and a lot of the things from this, th this kind of what Michael Myers sets up, I think Jason going into the 80s and the culture of media uh, kind of creates something in the zeitgeist about serial killers um, in film anyway. and. Uh, when you get to A Nightmare on Elm Street, it's really kind of the epitome of that. Freddie was like a media personality. I mean, he would host MTV shows. There was merchandise. And I think as I was thinking about this earlier today, I realized that in the early, like maybe from Halloween forward, he's the first one who talks and kind of has a personality. And I think that has something to do with it too. Like he's marketable because he's kind of funny and quippy. So you almost can't take it that seriously. But also, I think that Wes Craven does a good job of really balancing that quippiness. I mean, he might go over the top with it a little bit, but he still brings the horror. 
And uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street is still a pretty scary movie, uh, despite Freddy being Freddy. So uh, yeah, I think Wes Craven does a good job with that. Yeah, I think the first one, I think the way I look at these is I think of it the same way I think of Rambo movies, where what ends up happening is when you think of the character, you think of Rambo or you think of Michael Myers or Jason or any of them, you, you lump all the movies together. And so you see it as one entity. But when you go back and watch the original First Blood, you know, there's a real movie there and it's actually kind of effective. And I think that the same for these. I mean, the first Halloween is a truly good movie, a well-made movie. I think it gets diluted as the sequels go on. And Friday the 13th, very much the same thing, obviously. It just becomes a slasher movie. But I do think that Nightmare, more than any of the others, it just becomes it becomes more comedic. And if he becomes kind of uh, almost, uh, yeah, it, it's more of a comedy. You could more of a comedy killer in some ways. Whereas the original is genuinely scary. It, it has a lot of good scares in it, and he's a scary villain. Yeah, he's he's almost like a slightly scarier Max Headroom in that he's just like <laughs> this ubiquitous personality in the 80s doing so many ads and, and having merchandise and doing all these different things that are out there everywhere you look. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned that it gets sort of more comedic as it goes along, because I think in A New Nightmare in 1984, or I'm sorry, 1994, that's sort of a film about media and looking at itself, which doesn't land very well. Um, it tries to be metatextual and and doesn't really pull it off with Freddy and, and there are like TV shows involved and all of this weird stuff, but uh, that's kind of a swing and a miss for Wes Craven, but he would write the ship with that when he does Scream uh, in 1986, I'm sorry, 1996, which is the the fourth nominee on this film or on this category. Do you have any thoughts on Scream? Well, I will say that even though I picked Halloween as the best, Scream is my favorite. I, I think that he does redeem himself and it comes out at the perfect time because as we were talking about before, I think you start to get a little more cynical about horror movies in the 80s and more comedy kind of comes in. And we start acting like we know all the tropes. And Scream uses that to perfection. It uses our own expectations of horror movies against us. And it plays off the idea that it knows that we know what we think is coming. And balances all that beautifully. And still keeps it genuinely scary with just enough jump scares and uh, brutal murders and everything that goes with it. But everybody's kind of a wise-ass who, of course, thinks they know everything at this point but it doesn't save you. And, and that, that's why it works. You can't make a modern slasher movie and not play off the idea that we think we know what slasher movies are supposed to be and, and to play off of that. So it's my favorite and it's the one I've watched the most and uh, we'll kind of always watch it when it's on. So uh, I, I have a lot of love for that movie. It really is unique. I mean, it, it lays out the rules for you. I mean, it basically analyzes everything that came before it. It kind of zags where it's supposed to zig a little bit and and killing off drew barrymore early on you know uh bit of a psycho right, give you the final girl last like it's it the final girl goes first and so exactly. that right off the bat shows you that that the game has changed and so i thought i think for that reason alone that's why that scene is so important yeah and it and it's very influential i mean a lot of things that come after it certainly have a nod to it and uh I think it really defined modern horror in some ways, um, but you know, it's, it's tough to top Halloween. <laughs> it is because as you said before, you have to see the movie in the time that it's made and and not think about it in, in the, the larger context. 
and for when it was made. I mean, Halloween was just a groundbreaking movie. And as I talk about all the time in terms of movies that set templates, and that's what Halloween is. So uh, you're right, Scream may have reset the game, but you can't reset the game without Halloween, which right. started the game, which it basically invented it. So, so that's why I picked it as the best. Yeah. Um, so our next category kind of ties to the last one, and it's it's the best final girl. Um, I, actually, not all of these nominees come from the films that we, we just talked about, but three of them do. So for this one, just to mix it up a little bit and make it not obvious, I picked uh, Olivia Hussey's character from Black Christmas, which is kind of seen as the first final girl pre-Jamie Lee Curtis in, Hall- in uh, Halloween. Uh, and my other pick was Nancy Thompson from A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, eh, she's <laughs> she's okay, but by then I think we'd seen it's, it's not as much about her as it is everything else in the film. And I I uh, I don't know. Um, who are your picks for this one? So I picked Lori from Halloween. Obviously, the uh, what people consider to be the first final girl. Although you just blew that part up, so there you go. She's the second final girl. Well, like we said, you know, it, Halloween kind of repurposed those things and became the first. And Sydney Prescott from Scream. And what was your final pick on this? So my final pick, a final girl, was Sydney Prescott from Scream. I can give you a Ooh. simple reason. Okay. She's the only one that wins. Ah. Uh-huh. She's the final girl because she actually wins. The other ones survive, but the killer actually isn't gone and that's what's so interesting about scream as well which flips the script on it in that you do not get a repeat killer what you get is copycat killers which i think is a really interesting take on the genre in general because it takes away the idea that the killer is some kind of supernatural unkillable monster and really makes it more about it makes it more human where it's just a moron who puts on this costume and, and just try, tries to sow mayhem. But Sydney kills the, the, the ghost face and she wins. So uh, I know that the other ones are high and I know it, it would make sense to pick Lori because we consider her kind of the, the ultimate final girl, but she doesn't win. Uh, he survives. I mean, uh, the doctor is the one that shoots him and he still gets away anyway. And uh, she, she just gets away. But Sydney wins. That's a good pick. Um, for this one, I picked, I'm kind of a traditionalist and I and I did pick Laurie Strode from Halloween. Again, she is kind of the first one to do it, um, but not really, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just think it's so defining, you know, and at that time we hadn't really seen it maybe in Black Christmas, but uh on such a big scale in in such an important production, we hadn't seen it. So because of that, I think she gets the Oscar from me. Um, my other pick, Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street, I just kind of put her in there because I didn't want to include uh, the final girl from Texas Chainsaw Massacre and make you rewatch it. Um, so that. so uh, she's a bit of a throwaway. But I she didn't. does put up a good fight. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, even unlike Laurie, who's kind of playing defense, Nancy goes on offense. She tries to bring Freddie in, into, the, into the real world, and she actually has a plan. So in some ways, 
the pick does make sense. That's fair. It's the first time that that the uh, the final girl really you know goes on offense against the killer. So I kind of like that idea of it. So yeah, you back away. I think I think your pick is actually pretty sound for that reason. You know, I, as I was watching these, I was thinking, um, outside of Black Christmas, all of these kind of have generational guilt in them. Like the parents did something that the kids are paying for, uh, which is sort of interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know if anybody's written about that or anything, but it just, it seemed like something that jumped out at me that I thought I'd mention. Well, that's it. Uh, we did it. We wrapped up the first horror Oscars, first of many, I hope. Do you have anything else you want to add? This was fun. This was fun. I, and, and a lot of these movies I, I was watching for the first time and uh, it helped exercise a lot of demons for me, which is nice. Good. But I still will not watch uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre again. So appreciate that. Yeah, well, let's wrap it up. I want to tell everyone that we have a new home. We have uh, a Substack page. It's reoscar.substack.com. And you're going to be able to get the podcast episodes there along with uh, a bunch of additional materials, show notes, uh, some other writing about the shows we're doing and just whatever we think about writing that day or that week. So everybody check out reoscar.substack.com. And we're also on Instagram now. So head on over there and follow us. We're at reoscar, of course. Um, and we have some pretty good plans for that too. So uh, we hope you follow along. And uh, Mike, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for doing it. Guys, I appreciate you uh, introducing me to some movies that I had never heard of and would not have seen without your help. So uh, thanks for that. This was fun. Cool. All right. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time when we're going to look at the Oscars of 1983. See you then.